Well, dear God, I thank you for our evening tonight, and I thank you that we can study your Bible, that we can spend time uh, fellowshipping around our common ground that can unify us, and then we can get to know other people uh, in addition to that. But we know that your Bible says that whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. So I pray that tonight would be instruction for us, that we could identify and that we could learn about you and your Bible, maybe even learn a little bit about ourselves through what we study tonight. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, Genesis chapter 27, that's where we ended last night, Genesis chapter 27, all the way since chapter 12 of Genesis, we've been following the life of Abraham, and since then, it's been Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and through these men, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God is going to make a great nation. And last week, in one week, we went from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, like almost... All just boom. Uh, Three patriarchs Abraham, the first one, the second one, Isaac, and then we get to Jacob, and we hit them all really in one week there. And these three. These three are like the three, the three patriarchs. Maybe you've heard that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are mentioned throughout the Bible, not just here in the, in the book of Genesis. 33 times those three names are all put together, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the three patriarchs. They are highly revered um, in Israel's history and really the world's history. And so Abraham is mentioned throughout Scripture 225 times. Isaac is mentioned 121 times, but Jacob almost doubles it, 333 times mentioned in in the Bible. And and so that just tells us that Jacob, we're going to follow his life a little bit now, Jacob was not like a minor character here. Jacob was, was a biggie. And so what was it about Jacob that, that made him a key factor in God's plan for Israel and God's plan for the whole world? Well, we're going to find that out as we study the, the next several weeks and following uh, the life of Jacob. So we're in Genesis chapter 27. We ended last week in Genesis 27, but I, I want to make sure we understand who our key players are. So I kind of have a family tree that I put together so we all know who we're talking about. I'm going to keep it up there all night long. So even if I get a name wrong or an association wrong, you know what I'm talking about. We started off with Abraham and he married Sarah and they left Ur and they headed out to Um, headed out to the promised land. God promised them a son, and in their old age, they did finally have a son. His name was Isaac. And Isaac needed a wife, and so you remember that Abraham sent his servant to go find a wife for him, but he told his servant, don't find anybody of the the Philistines or the Moabites or any of those people, anyone in, in Canaan. I want you to go back to my family, and I want you to pick someone who was essentially, in our terminology, is a Jew. And so that servant brought back a godly woman named Rebekah. He was, uh, she was the, like a great niece of Abraham, uh, 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 part of the, the family line of uh, one of his brothers. And so we have Abraham, the first patriarch. Then we have his son, Isaac, patriarch number two. And Isaac and Rebekah, last week they had two sons, Esau 
and Jacob. And that's the events that we followed last week was the, the difficulties between these two brothers. They were twins. They didn't look the same because they were fraternal twins and they were constantly fighting because that's exactly what their, uh, that's what their parents told them to do. That's what their parents did. The parents pitted one against the other. So that's why I kind of have it set up like this, that Isaac loved his son Esau. Esau was the manly man. He was the hairy man. He was the dirty man. He went out and hunted. Yeah, manly men. And so Isaac, the dad, loved Esau. But then Rebekah loved the other son, the second son, the younger son, Jacob. He was mama's boy. He stuck around in the tents. He cooked with her. And so because of all of this, she loved him more than she loved Esau. As a matter of fact, Isaac really didn't have great love for Jacob, and Rebecca didn't really have a great love for Esau. They kind of picked their sides, and it was a competition their entire life, and that's how the two boys grew up. It was like in their DNA, this dysfunctional family trying to make things go, but these two brothers were always competing. Jacob, the younger one, conned his brother, well, just convinced his brother to to sell the birthright was something that would come from that would come to the the oldest son Esau was the oldest son they're twins but one has to come out first right and so Esau is the one that came out first and so he was the older son he was supposed to get the birthright he was supposed to get the blessing well Jacob one day said hey I'll sell you some chef boyardee soup in exchange for the birthright and Esau because he so despised his family he just he 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 was he was emotionally crippled from the parenting that he had and the competition in the family, he didn't want to have anything to do with the family. He said, well, fine. <laughs> the, the birthright is worth less to me than some soup for today. And so Jacob got the birthright. It was supposed to go to the older son. Uh, culturally, it was supposed to go to the older son, and it, he traded it to his younger brother. Then later on, Jacob, you remember, this is kind of where we ended last week, Jacob conned his dad into giving him the blessing. And when you combine the birthright and the blessing, that is everything that is the family. To be the family's high priest, to, be the, to have all of the wealth, to own all of the land. And the blessing really was God's uh, prophecy of going well with you in all sorts of ways. And whoever the patriarch gave that blessing to, God honored that blessing. And so Isaac, dad, loved his son Esau, and so he was going to give it to his son Esau, not only because he loved him, but because he was the firstborn son. Now, God had already told Isaac and Rebekah that the older one who is supposed to get all of this, that is supposed to be served by the rest of the family, is not going to be the head. It's going to be the younger one, that Jacob is going to be served by the older. And so Jacob is going to get all of the, the good things. Well, Isaac wasn't interested in any of that because he wanted his son to have the blessing because the older son got the birthright and the older son got the blessing. He ignored God. In all of these things, but Rebecca didn't forget. Rebecca was right on track, and Rebecca just wasn't so sure, and Jacob wasn't so sure that God was going to be able to work everything out, and so they worked it out for God. That's nice of them. They worked it out for God, and they conned, um, deceived dad, deceived Isaac into giving Jacob the blessing. That's where we pick it up from last week, Genesis chapter 27 and uh, verse 41. Brother comes back in, Esau comes back in, and verse 41. So Esau bore a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing 
with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near. He thought his dad was dying relatively soon. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. He, he realized uh, that he got conned and he so hated his brother, he was going to kill him after his dad died. He loved his dad so much, he didn't want his dad to see his son uh, uh, commit, uh, kill his other son. And so he's going to wait for dad to die, going to go kill Jacob so that he could get everything back that he had lost from the deception. Verse 42, now when the words of her older son Esau were reported to Rebekah, she sent and called her younger son Jacob and said to him, behold, your brother Esau is consoling himself concerning you by planning to kill you. Yeah, that's one way to console yourself, right? <laughs> I think if we're honest, we've all consoled ourselves maybe a little bit in that way. And, and so Rebekah loves her son Jacob more than Esau. And so she isn't concerned about the emotions of her son Esau. She isn't concerned about, about what, what his perspective is in any of this. She just cares only for Jacob and this dysfunction of a family. And so she says, Jacob, you got to come here. I want to protect your life. He's going to kill you. So verse 43, now, therefore, my son, obey my voice and arise and flee to Haran to my brother Laban. Go off to my brother Laban and you're going to hopefully your brother cools off a little bit from all of this. So then we pick it up in verse 1 of, of chapter 28. It says, So Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said, You shall not take a wife of the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and from there take, uh, take to yourself a wife from the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he also give you the blessing of Abraham to you and to your descendants with you, that you may possess the land of your sojournings, which God gave to Abraham. And so Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padan Aram, to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, uh, the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Jacob and Esau. Okay, so it's interesting here that, remember for, for Isaac, Abraham went, his dad, Abra, Isaac's dad, Abraham, sent a servant to go find a wife for Isaac. Remember that? Because he wanted to make sure that it was of the right family, uh, all the right things. And so son stayed with him. Even the servant, remember, asked, should I bring Isaac with me just in case this girl won't, won't, won't come? Should I bring him with me so that she can see how ripped he is and everything? And say, oh, I want to marry him. And Abraham said, no. Um, if you find the right one, the right one's going to come. And she did. That was Rebecca. But notice that Isaac doesn't do the same thing for Jacob. He, he sends Jacob away and just says, don't, don't marry anybody in Canaan. <laughs> don't marry a Philistine. Don't, uh, don't ma marry any, anybody that ends in an en or an ite. Marry, marry, marry someone who is of the family, who is, who's a Jew. That would be our terminology, who's a Jew. And there's a reason for this. God, God is working out a plan here. And Isaac is just fitting into the, the providence of God. He doesn't really even know it. But he has to get Jacob away from this family for a lot of reasons. And so he sends Jacob away to 
uh, to Rebekah's brother, Laban. Now, let's swing back to Esau again. Esau, the other brother, the other twin, the firstborn, the one that got robbed, uh, the one that um, had the blessing stolen away from him, verse 6. Now, Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take to himself a wife from there. And that when he blessed him, he charged him saying, you shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and had gone to Padan Aram. So Esau saw that the daughters of Canaan displeased his father Isaac. Remember, he's the one that went and married uh, not someone from the family. He had married someone from Canaan, the, the, the locals. He didn't marry just one, he married two. And so he watched this whole exchange of his dad saying, don't marry one of the locals, marry someone from the family. And so it started to kind of, it started to hit him. And Esau then went to Ishmael and married beside the wives that he had, and, and this is her name, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son. So he, uh, Esau starts to realize that, um, that he had messed up by marrying these two other women that he shouldn't have married from Canaan. He messed up. He sold the birthright. He, he lost the, the blessing. And so, Jacob, uh, and so Esau is now trying to, like, okay, trying to make a course correction, you know, trying to adjust his life. But the problem is, is that he didn't have any sort of moral compass to make the course correction with. The problem wasn't specifically the women that he married. The problem was he was rebelling against God. The problem was sin. And he needed to turn from his sin to God. That was the proper course correction. But he didn't have that moral compass. And so he decides to just jump in <laughs> and pull up his own bootstraps and see if he could attempt to undo what he had done. But of course, that's not the way that it works. Maybe you've tried that before to, to try to uh, fix the, the difficulties you caused yourself in the past by trying to do more good things. But that's not the way that it works. It's impossible. It's impossible to pull up your own bootstraps. It's impossible to, to, make, to, to fix the things that you messed up in the past, and then finally you're somehow right or righteous. That's only a, a change that God can make in you. And so Esau is as, as far away from God as he always has been. That was a little Esau commercial. Now, let's get back to Jacob, verse 10. Then Jacob departed from Beersheba and went toward Haran. So let me kind of set the scene a little bit of what's happening here. Jacob is now 77 years old. He has a hit out on him. His brother wants to take him out. Um, 60 years ago, his grandfather, Abraham, his his Really, he, he, the greatest godly example that he had died, that he had, had died 60 years ago. And so Jacob, for the last 60 years, hasn't had like a real good godly example. His family was not that. Isaac and Rebekah were not the godly examples of great, wonderful, upstanding parents. As a matter of fact, the longer that Jacob lived in that house, the worse he got, the worse it got for him. And so God needed a way to get him out of that house. And so he did. And now Jacob is running. And so he gets sent to Haran. 
which is 450 miles north. And he's walking there all alone, 450 miles. So that's from here to Sacramento. Okay, so if you're going to go to Sacramento, I don't know why you'd want to go to Sacramento, but if you were going to go, it'd be walking from here to Sacramento. And so that would be at least a month's worth of hiking through the desert, through, through uh, the Philistine cities, through the various other nations in the land of Canaan. And so you could imagine what he, what's going through his mind, you know, kind of put yourself in that place, heading out all alone, wondering, am I even going to make it? Um, who's, who is going to take me out? Uh, what is going to take me out? <laughs> he has two options, a who or a what could take him out. Wondering, is he ever going to see his family again? Is, is his family ever, is my family ever going to be united ever again? I'm leaving my mom and dad. My dad is near death. My brother hates me and wants to kill me. It's possible that I'll never see my family ever again. You can imagine all of the difficulty that's going through his mind, the, the, the challenge that he is going through just mentally and emotionally. And so three days into this journey, uh, he, he stops for, for bedtime that night. The sun goes down, time to stop. And so... That's what we're going to read here. Then it came about a certain place where he spent the night there because the sun had set, and he took one of the stones of the place and put it under his head, and he lay down at that place. And he had a dream, and behold, a ladder. This is Jacob's ladder. Have you heard of Jacob's ladder? Okay, this is Jacob's ladder. A ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to the heaven, and behold, the angels of God were descending and ascending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God your father, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the land on which you lie. I will give it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your descendants shall all the nations of the families be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. So three days into this trip, 70, 70 miles, 70 miles away from where he is, he stops and he Spends the night, it's time to sleep. 70 miles from here is about Palmdale, okay? So you've walked to Palmdale by now, and you're far enough away from home to begin all these things to be hitting your brain. And God knew that he needed, that, that Jacob needed just a little bit of confidence. He, he needed to know that God was taking care of him. And so that's what this dream of Jacob's ladder is. It's, it's just helping Jacob know that the indigenous people aren't going to get you and the animals aren't going to get you and you're going to be with your family again. And this is a reminder for Jacob that God is always, always there, always in control of all of the things that are going on. 
the dream is of God standing on top of the ladder and the angels being sent from heaven to enact God's will and the angels coming back, uh, having, having enacted that and, and God welcoming them back into, into heaven, God is always in control. He is always working out his will. He is always working out his plan. We don't see it necessarily and we don't know it necessarily, but Jacob just needed to know something. And so he gives him this dream, just a dream for his own confidence to reassure him that what God was doing, he was really doing. And so that's in verse 15. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. I will bring you back to the land, meaning you're going to come back here. You're not going to be gone forever. You're not going to die out here. No one's going to take you out. No animal's going to take you out. For I will not leave you and I will, and I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. And so we have this dream. And this dream that occurs of the angels ascending and descending and God on, on top of that, to him was much more than just informational. It was more than just like a cognitive, I get it, God. It was something more than that. Read, read the, the next couple of verses, verse 16. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. As, as a result of all of this, I think this is where Jacob is born again, like, like uh, New Testament terms. I, I think this is where Jacob puts his faith in God where he realizes that God is on the throne and that he has faith in whatever God's plans are. I think this is the place. I think this is where he goes from a wayward son, where Jacob and Esau are both far from God, to now he is different than Esau. He now has a faith in God because of what God showed him here. And we would call that being born again. The Old Testament didn't use that, those terms, but that's exactly how people have always been saved is through faith, faith in Messiah, faith in God's plan. They knew less in the Old Testament than we knew today, but it's always been through faith. It hasn't been through sacrifices. It has not been through good deeds. It hasn't been through any of those things. It's always been through faith. And so I think this is where he puts his faith in who God is. Verse 18, so Jacob arose early in the morning and took, that, uh, took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top. And he called the place Bethel, However, previously, the name of the city had been Luz. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me on the journey that I take and will give me food to eat and garments to wear, and I return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God. This stone, which I have set up as a pillar, will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. So this was such an impactful place that, that Jacob erects this pillar as a place of memory of what God did in his life right there. And then he has this agreement, <laughs> this agreement, okay, God, if you do this, then I'm going to do this. If you provide for me, if you give me food to eat, 
if you give me clothing, if you give me safety to bring you, me back home, if you do these things, then you're going to be my God. Then I'm going to give you 10% of everything that I accumulate during whatever I have in life. And so he calls the place Bethel. Bethel means the house of God. Now, I, I know some people call the church the house of God, but like we know that God doesn't like live here. Some people go to church because they think that that's where God is, where that's where God lives. And so some, like sometimes parents threaten their kids and they go to church. Oh, we better be good here because this is where God lives. You can't run around the chairs in there because this is where God lives. But of course, God doesn't live in a, in a place that someone builds, but but everybody, every Christian at least, certainly has a Bethel. That in our minds, there's a place where, where we remember where we met the Lord. And that was Bethel. That, to him, that's where God lived. But the, the, the place that you can remember where you met the Lord, that's your Bethel. That's what it was for him. It wasn't a building that God lived there. But in his mind, it was this place was memorialized because of because of his faith that he had in the Lord right there. I'm going to tell a story about Tanya, my wife. I didn't ask her if I could tell this, so I might pay for this later. <laughs> Usually in our family, we have an agreement that I'm going to, if I'm going to tell a story, I, we, I ask first, but I'm not asking. Um, <laughs> when I married Tanya, she, she was a believer, but I didn't know, I didn't know how she was saved um, or where she was saved. I didn't know the entire story or the entire detail when we got married. I do know that, I did know that when she was uh, relatively um, in her uh, junior high years that a, a pastor had been called to her house for some very difficult reasons. And the pastor all led the entire family in a prayer. And her dad said, okay, we're all going to pray, guys. We're going to pray the prayer. But Tanya knows that she didn't get saved right there because the purpose of that prayer was just to fix the problem that was immediately at hand. And maybe you've done that in your past too. You came to church or you prayed a prayer because you just wanted God to solve the problem. It wasn't about faith. It wasn't about turning from your sin to God. It wasn't about any repentance. It was only about just solve this problem. And if, if I say the right words, maybe my problem goes away. Well, that's why she prayed that prayer. But I did know that after that, she had, she had uh, put her faith in Christ and she was a believer. So we got married and I worked in retail management for a long, long time. And uh, the company that I was working for uh, was uh, filing bankruptcy for like the third time. And I'm like, hmm, maybe I should get another job that's a little more secure. And so I, I got a job at Forest Home, Christian Conference Center up in uh, the San Bernardino Mountains. And I was hired to be the director of retail sales there. And um, a lot of property, a lot of locations. And I came back and said, I got a job at Forest Home. I'd never been to Forest Home. I grew up in Southern California, Christian my entire life. Never, I never even heard of Forest Home. Some place called Forest Home. She's like, oh my goodness. So I took her up there and she drags me down this, this little side uh, walkway down to this pole. And she says, it's right here that, that, I, that, I made, that I gave my life to Jesus. It's right here where I told my youth pastor's wife that I want to serve Jesus forever. It was right here. And that was her Bethel. And I bet most of you can remember the place where you put your faith in Christ. That's your Bethel. God doesn't live there in that sense, but is memorialized in the location of where that occurred. And this is where Jacob's Bethel is. Now, he got to name the place. Okay? The place up there is still called Forest Home. It's not like Tanya's 
home or something like that. But it's that pole outside, middle of nowhere. That's where I told my youth pastor's wife that I want to follow Jesus forever. Well, that's exactly what is occurring here for Jacob. This is his Bethel. And notice then what happens in verse 22. Uh, God saves his soul. And in verse 22, um, uh, he says, uh, it says that the, the stone which I have uh, set up a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. Not, God didn't only save his soul. He, he, sold his, he, he saved his bank account. <laughs> he gave a tenth. He, everything that he was going to get, he wanted to give a tenth to God. Now, why was that? Well, because in, in the Old Testament, in this era, in these cultures, 10% represented everything. And so if, if, if you wanted to make a big commitment to whatever God you were serving, you would give 10% of everything to your God because that represented that, that God gave you everything. And so, of course, Jacob says, well, this is the one true God. And so I'm going to give God everything because he has given me, he's given me the, the, the birthright. He's given me the blessing. Everything that I have comes from God. And so that's the first reason why he decides to give 10%. But the second reason he decides to give 10% is because he wants to be like his grandpa, Abraham. Remember Abraham, uh, he had told his grandson, obviously, the story of he goes out and saves his nephew Lot. Abraham comes back with all the spoils of war. He meets Melchizedek. Melchizedek is a priest. And he realizes that this priest is uh, a representative of God. And so Abraham gives 10% of all the war spoils to Melchizedek, the priest, because he realized that God is the one who provided it all for him. And the 10% represented the all. And it's interesting that then Abraham, his grandfather, he built an altar out of stones and he called it Bethel. And that's exactly what, what he does here too. And so as soon as Jacob puts his faith in God, like everything's changed. His perspective changes, um, his commitment to the Lord changes, and uh, all that is in uh, Genesis 28. Well, why don't we take a break and we'll get to uh, some more of the drama after we come back from the break. I'll see you in 10 minutes. Okay. <clears throat> We're following the life of Jacob 1800 BC, 4,000 years ago, and it can kind of, I can see why following the lives of Old Testament characters could, <laughs> could um, seem like it's boring or, or unnecessary, or you could wonder, how is this going to, how does this person ever matter to me? I mean, they, they don't have Netflix, they don't have, they don't have, they don't have an iPhone, what, what, how could what they do matter to, to me in, in my life? But we kind of have to change our thinking a little bit because 4,000 years ago, we're not talking about people who are, are dragging their knuckles on the ground, you know, still trying to figure out language, you know, they just, they just invented fire. It's not like that. I know that's the, the way that, that you uh, might imagine this. Uh, that you know, they, they go out and knock women over the head with the club and drag them home by their hair to the cave, you know. And but that's not, these are real people with normal lives, uh, normal difficulties, uh, normal emotions, uh, just like yours and mine. And in Romans it says, "For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction." so that through perseverance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And so that's why we study this stuff, is because this stuff was written for, for us, uh, 
written for our instructions so that we in later times, that this is written of earlier times, but now in later times that we would have hope. And so th these things do apply because these things are, are normal people. And that couldn't be any more true than the, <laughs> the dysfunctional family of Jacob. <laughs> that his family is so... Yes, Jacob was certainly blessed by God. He was, he was, uh, God was called the God of Jacob in the Bible 22 times. So yes, he was definitely blessed by God. He was blessed by God by having 12 sons. And just even having one son was a huge benefit, a huge blessing in this culture because a son was the provision for your retirement. Well, he had 12. And it was going to be that these 12 are going to be the, the, the ones that would begin the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 sons of, of Jacob. He was definitely blessed. God eventually changed Jacob's name to Israel. God is the God of Israel. And so... Yes, he is very blessed, but he's human. Just like everyone, he has human flaws just like you and I had human flaws. And he, one of his key human flaws was just a part of his DNA. His grandfather had it. And then his, his dad, Isaac, had it. And now he has it as well. And the, the, the major flaw that we see is that he just wanted to take things into his own hands. You might have this flaw. <laughs> it, it was just—it's it, 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 just hard for for him to understand that that God had had a when something was going to happen, and God had a how something was going to happen. And if we forget that God has a timing, a when, and He has He has the way that it's going to, we forget that. It can, it can get us into trouble because then what we say is, well, if God's not going to do it, then I'm going to do it. And that's the, the, the flaw that Abraham had. That's the flaw that Isaac had. And now that is flowing through the DNA in the flaw that we, we see that come out in Jacob as well uh, here in this chapter. So he's traveling to, um, to his uncle Laban's house, verse uh, 1 of chapter 29. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the sons of the east. Skip down to verse 4. Jacob said to them, my brothers, where are you from? And they said, we are from Haran. And he said to them, well, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, yeah, we know him. Skip down to verse 9. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Then Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother. Jacob went up and rolled the stone from the mouth of the well and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted his voice and wept. And I think the reason that he wept is just because he's finally with family again. His journey is finally over. And Jacob told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. So when Laban heard the news of Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to the house. Then he related to Laban all of these things. What these things? Everything that we have just studied uh, about their life in the last couple of weeks. And Laban said to him, surely you are bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Now, remember, just a quick break. Remember, Jacob has no money. He is destitute. He is poor. Now, he, like, he, he has the blessing. <laughs> he, has, he, has, uh, 
He, he has the birth, birthright. He has, the, he has everything, but he just couldn't take any of it with him. Like he, had to, he skedaddled fast. And so, I mean, if he left under normal circumstances, mom said bye and dad said bye and brother said see you later, if it all went good, he would, he would have money with him, but now he doesn't have anything with him. Verse 15, then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing, tell me what your wages will be. What, what do you want to be paid while you work here with me? Now, Laban had two daughters. That is a funny transition. Tell me, tell me, what shall your wages be? Now, Laban had two daughters. <laughs> Remember, Moses is writing this through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And Moses just says, there's something else on Jacob's mind than uh, getting paid. The girls. Well, 77, the women. Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. And Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and face. Now, there's a lot of discussion on what it means there in verse 17 where it says, Leah's eyes were weak. If anyone has weak eyes, it's me. (laughs) Just look at my skinny eyes, okay? The reason my eyes are skinny, for those of you who are uninitiated, I was born without muscles in my eyelids. And so um, my eyes didn't develop the right way when I was a kid. I did all sorts of things. I did patching. I was always at Children's Hospital of Los Angeles. And I had this surgery where they took muscle from my leg, and I had the scars here, and they put it in my eyelids to, to get my eyes open. Well, you can tell how good that worked out. You know, <laughs> It just doesn't last very long. Because that, my eyes didn't develop too well. And so I have fine vision, but my eyes just don't see in the right... Um, they, 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 they like see off kilter. I, I, if I'm relaxing, if I just relax here and stare at you for a minute, I, I start to get two of you. And they start to separate like this. Okay, Michael, just keep shaking your head because I have two... My, Michael's right here. I can, get, I can get two green shirts... And so my brain has to put those together all the time, and I get headaches, and so that's why I wear glasses, because glasses try to put those images together, right? Okay, so if anybody has weak eyes, I can understand. And so what does this mean, she has weak eyes? Now, does it mean that she had a a ptosis problem like me in my eyeballs? That's not the impression that's given with the rest of the explanation here. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful. The impression is, is that she's ugly. <laughs> you know? Now, I mean, I have weak eyes and I'm not, so I mean, I don't know if that's what it really means or not. So I, I don't really know what this means, actually. Um, there are a lot, if you read commentaries, there's a thousand different options on your commentaries and what, what they say. Now, another way to translate that Hebrew word, word weak eyes is the word tender. I think that might be a good translation that she was tender spirited. Um, she had a good personality. <laughs> but if your mom ever introduces you to some girl that has a good personality, <laughs> you know what that means. <laughs> and so that's why she uh, was uh, weak in her eyes and Rachel was beautiful. I don't know. I don't know all of what that means. I just know that uh, he was interested in Rachel because he was beautiful in form 
and interface. So which one did Jacob choose? That's not a hard, that's a not a hard question, the beautiful one. Verse 18, now Jacob loved Rachel, and so he said, I will serve you, remember to Laban, her dad, seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than to give her to another man. Stay with me. Now, that, it seems hard, but he, he, I think he, what he's just saying is, is that it, it's better that, he marry, that she marry someone in the family, marry another Jew, than, than she marry um, some, just some, some locals, you know, that it's better that way. Verse 20, so Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of his love for her. Aw. Everybody say, aw. That's about the only sweet thing in this entire chapter right there. <laughs> Verse 21, then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. That's romantic. Give me my wife. We just jumped seven years between those two verses, from the end of verse 20 to the beginning of verse 21, we went seven years. And Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife for my time is completed that I may go into her, have sexual relationship with her. And Laban gathered all of the men of the place and made a feast. Now in the evening, he took his daughter Leah, the good personality one, <laughs> and brought her to him. And Jacob went into her, consummated the, the marriage with her. Laban also gave his maid, Zilpah, to his daughter, Leah, as a maid. So it came about in the morning that, behold, it was Leah. And he said to Laban, what is this that you've done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served with you? Why then have you deceived me? <laughs> yeah, the player gets played. That's, that's, what you, that, that's what we understand from this, okay? You can put spiritual words to it or whatever, but the player got played. Le Leah was swapped out for Rachel somewhere along the, the way. And so he lies, Jacob lies to his dad, and then now he gets lied to. He deceived his dad, and now he's de deceived himself. And so a lot of people ask, how in the world could this be? How could you get married and then consummate the marriage and not even know who it was until the morning. <laughs> and so the, again, there are, the, you read commentaries, there's a thousand different options. Sometimes they say that Jacob was too drunk um, to even know what was going on. Sometimes they say that there was uh, rituals, that, that there was a veiled, uh, that the woman was veiled for the entire night. I don't know. I don't know how this happened. I just know that it did. Now, when you get to heaven... You could go ask Jacob and Leah. I'm not going to ask them. You could ask them. How all of this happened, I don't know. Verse 26. This is Laban's answer. It's not in the practice, um, it's, it's not the practice in our place to marry the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week with this one, and we will give you the other also for the service which you shall serve for another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week, and he gave him his daughter Rachel as his wife. Laban also gave his maid Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her maid. So now Jacob has worked 14 years. And if we're going to continue our, our family tree, Jacob marries Leah. He thinks it's Rachel. He gets conned into marrying Leah. And then after another seven years, 
he, he begins or continues, I guess, polygamy on planet Earth and marries another, the one that he really wanted in the first place. And so this is where you get the player gets played. Just remember, the player gets played. Now, this, this, this strife between Rachel and Leah, he loved one more than the other, started from the very beginning. And the reason that he loved one more than the other is because that's just what he was taught to do in his family. That's just the way that it was. His dad, his dad didn't love him, but his mom did. His dad loved his brother, but his mom didn't love his brother. And so it seemed completely normal for him to love one, but not the other. Of course, this was a massive dysfunction. And so I wrote down, I don't know if we have time to get through all of them, but I wrote down the concept, some of the consequences of, of him taking things into his own hands and conning his dad out of the blessing. Now he's paying a lot of prices now later on. One of them, he has physical and emotional separation from his family. He's far away from them and he's estranged from his brother. He has learned the sad lesson that if you deceive others, you are going to be deceived yourself. All of this had to happen the hard way Remember, if he had brought his money with him, if he had brought uh, all the, the blessing and, and, and the birthright, all the, if, he had brought all the, if he had it with him, he could have just, just paid the dowry and acquired, I, that's a bad word, but acquired his wife, Rachel, just like that, without ever having to go through four, 14 years of hard labor. That's a price that he paid. And now, ultimately, we'll continue to read, but ultimately, he spends 20 years at, at Laban's, 20 years outside of the blessings of God. Just because he said, God's not doing it how I want, and he's not doing it when I want, so I'm going to help God fix it. And so there's always a price to pay for all of that. Now, as you can imagine, the, the deception that, that, remember, Laban and Rebekah are brother and sister. I mean, that family is a bunch of, <laughs> like, they're just like the mob, you know? They're always, like, working behind the scenes and lying and uh, treachery and, you know, all, all these, you know, all that sort of, sort of thing. And so uh, Laban uh, continues to mess with Jacob, and eventually Jacob gets tired of it and uh, decides to, to go back, um, to go back um, home. But haunting him in the back of his mind is Genesis 27, verse 41. So Esau bore a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near, then I will kill my brother Jacob. That's always in the back of his mind. And it's, tr it's tragic that it had to happen like this. All this is unnecessary. If he would have just waited on God, he would have had the money that he needed. He could have paid the dowry and everything that we're looking at here never had to happen if he just followed the Lord. Now, he's going to continue to learn some lessons. He now, he now has faith in God, which certainly changes a lot of things. Um, unfortunately, not everything. Look at verse 31. Now, the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, and he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Um, a lot of time has passed right here. In verse 31, it says, now. That's not like the next minute. Time has passed. We don't know how long time has passed, but it's certainly not the next day. And we begin to see the, the consequences of 
of all of this drama and all of uh, Jacob's um, isms built into his DNA. And Leah was unloved through no fault of her own. She didn't do anything wrong. She, she didn't sign up for any of this. She, she didn't ask for it. She didn't even fall in love with Jacob. She didn't fall out of love with Jacob. Like, she, she, she didn't deceive Jacob. She, she did nothing. And yet, all of this was upon her. Now she's going to live a life of being unloved. And you wonder, how come that would have to happen? Now, the Bible gives a lot of reasons why difficulties come. Sometimes difficulties come because God is disciplining a sin. Disciplining a sin. Sometimes uh, difficulties come when God is disciplining like one of his followers for continuous sin, like unrepentant sin. Sometimes God brings difficulties for our own edification, for building us up. It's not for bad, it's actually for good. James in the New Testament, Philippians in the New Testament is all about that kind of difficulties that come that, that are not about sin at all, but about for building our maturity, building our faith in God. And as we persevere in those things, we build our faith in the Lord. But another reason that difficulties come is just because we live in a fallen world. You know, other people's drama splashes up on us. Um, you have these two tornadoes, uh, Laban and Jacob, and you have these two tornadoes and multiple people are just sucked into the vortex of these two tornadoes. They, and, and Leah just it was living in a fallen world and, and all of their difficulty splashes up on her. But God does give her one blessing and that is kids. And that's what we see in verse 32, uh, Leah conceived, this is probably, or not probably, this is one of the saddest verses in the Bible. Leah conceived and bore a son and named him Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has seen my affliction, surely now my husband will love me. This, this boy is going to make him love me. Sure enough, it didn't happen. Verse 33, then she conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am unloved. The first one didn't work. She's still unloved. He has therefore given me this son also. And so she named him Simeon. But that didn't help the love at all. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, she named him Levi. Now do you think that he then loved her and attached to her because of three sons? Look at verse 35. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I'll praise the Lord. Forget that husband of mine. <laughs> and, I, and some women, unfortunately, have to live in this state where she is married to a man that does not love her. And, and, and all, all the woman and wife wants is just someone to hold on to, so a rock to be there, someone to, to, to download with and someone to, to, to seek advice from. That, that's all that she wants. And, and it seems like of all places to get that would be from your husband, right? But it's not there. But the one thing that you can cling on to is the Lord. As lonely as she was, she had the Lord to hang on to, and there's no one better to hang on to than the Lord. But she was in love by her husband, and so she starts praising the Lord. <laughs> the, hus the husband didn't help me much out here, but the Lord did. Well, it's 8 o'clock. We have to be done. 
Well, dear God, I thank you for what we've uh, learned tonight, and I pray that this was beneficial for our instruction. And it does give us hope to know that you are always intervening in, in the world and in our lives for your sovereignty's sake. And we praise you for that, and we can rest assured in these things. And God, I pray that as we've studied these things and as we know them, they'll change not just our mind but our hearts, and it'll help us live our life this week. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, my friends, I'll see you on Sunday.